Money is simply an abstraction of human time and energy. Money is kind of a, a grassroots democratic voting system for what gets produced in the world. It allows you to get what you need. It's a way to store your passion. So we believe we live in a democracy. We believe we have rule of law. But money is superordinate to mm -hmm. rule of law. I think for me, money is its a language. It's, it's a language of value. Mm -hmm. You know, money is not a thing someone imposes. It just emerges. Language, law, and money are the networks mm -hmm. that complex systems use to communicate. And if you corrupt the communication links, then yes. you, corrupt the, you disrupt the communication. You know, and with the, the title of what your show is, What is Money? To me, one of the things I've gotten from Heidegger is pouring over the same question over and over. Like, that's truly what thinking is. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. We got on this podcast because someone tweeted at us, and I don't remember exactly what it was about, but I think it was just related to the general question, what is money? Um, do, you do you recall exactly what it was that got us uh, to set this up? It was something about money. It all, it's always about money, right? <laughs> so I think it was me theorizing what money is. Um, I think someone, I think it was about Bitcoin is stored energy. And I said something contrary to that. And, uh, oh, yeah, I said something like it is stored energy. And then I think you chimed in and said, well, what is money? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that sounds about right. Well, that is my next question for you, actually. Um, 
you know, seems like it's got a lot of answers. How would you answer the question? What is money? Well, I think it's going to going to be different for different people. But my definition of money is money is simply an abstraction of human time and energy. Mm. And I think that's why I was saying Bitcoin is stored energy. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily stored electrical potential energy. It is human time and energy. Mm. So if you go down to the root of it, money is simply a, a sort of a facilitator for human trade, right? Barter is quite inefficient, but if you can have this abstraction layer where you can mm -hmm. kind of uh, store value of goods or your time and energy, then you can trade with people and move that into the future. Mm -hmm. So if you break it down to pre-industrial times, you know you have to make a lot of things yourself. So as a simple example, let's just say making a jacket. So let's say you have a, a kid and you want to make them a jacket because it's cold outside, right? You can spend that time and make them a jacket to keep them warm, but you can also forego fun, a vacation or doing other things too, like leisure and make another one and keep that for the next winter mm. or for another relative or something like that. But you can basically keep doing this and you can store your time in some sort of uh, good or service. Mm. Now, if that is stored in money and the money supply is not corruptible, you can theoretically provide for future generations, maybe tens or hundreds of generations in the future. Mm. So that's why money is very important. But that's also why there's a big incentive to mm. corrupt the money supply, because if you can corrupt the money supply, manipulate the money, you can basically get people to do things for free. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. This a lot of people on Bitcoin Twitter debate about this. Is Bitcoin a battery thing? Right. Obviously, you can put labor into it or you can expend energy to create it via the mining process. But that doesn't mean you can then convert. You can't plug Bitcoin into your car or house or something to power it, obviously. But it is money, right? So if if it's money that's functioning properly, you could redeem it for anything the market can produce, including energy. So it has like this, it's obviously an analogy. It's not actually a battery. <laughs> Bitcoin's not something you carry around and plug into things. Um, but it does seem to have like this kind of right only feature for energy, right? You can put your labor into it or put energy into it and then use that to redeem the labor, labor from others or energy from others. Um, and that also, I agree with you, that speaks to the major incentive to corrupt it, which is just to get something for nothing, right? You can, if you can get a hold of that, then you as the thief or confiscator can now obtain that energy just by, by right of, of confiscation or inflation. Yeah. But I think it's important to make that distinction that it's human time and energy because mm. money is not really used for other people. Like if you like, go to an animal like a dog and you say, I'll give you money, it's not going to work, right? <laughs> or let's say if there was an alien race out there and you say, well, we'll give you some money, they probably won't care unless they want a, another human to do something for them. Mm -hmm. So it, it's really pertaining to people and our ability to use technology and use our work and move that into the future for prosperity to build on top of something that came before it. Yeah, it's a good point. It's very metaphorical in a way, 
like we think a metaphor is like a way to understand one experience in terms of another experience perhaps and i guess we need you need some common language to have economic trade right we can't just uh, we can't all just be, as you said, barter doesn't work. It's inefficient. So there needs to be some common denominator for people to think in and talk in and communicate in. And um, maybe that's why it speaks to, like to conceptualize it, as you said, as an abstraction of time or energy. Those are the most fundamental inputs to any economic process. So maybe that's kind of two sides of the same coin that money is uh, some kind of economic metaphor, but that's why it's an abstraction for for time human time and energy because those are the inputs to every process that that's relevant to human beings yeah and money is valuable because human time and energy is finite right we right. have fixed term lives and we have a fixed amount of energy like you cannot you cannot work at the same level when you're mm -hmm. old right you have to save when you're young for when you can no longer work at that same output right so mm -hmm. that's why money is very important also because it is an abstraction it is intangible and this is why historically other forms of money have failed because if you say money is intangible bitcoin is the ultimate intangible thing it's purely digital it doesn't mm -hmm. exist in the physical realm so if you go back like a few years or you know some companies are still looking into this but there, there's the whole concept of using blockchain to do X mm -hmm. because then you have a, a immutable and incorruptible record, right? But they keep forgetting that garbage in is garbage out. So I guess my favorite one is supply chain blockchains. So you can mm -hmm. use a blockchain to anchor a supply chain. So you know it went through this place and this part was sourced from here and then here, but you can kind of trace it through. But it, if at any point you're anchoring that data to whatever blockchain, if that data is garbage, then the whole thing is garbage, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you have the inverse problem of money, which is you're trying to anchor truth, like physical real world things mm. to an intangible thing, but there's no direct connection there. So money has the opposite problem. You have this abstraction of human time and energy, but you're trying to anchor it to something physical in the world, like mm. a, a seashell. Uh, mm -hmm. a gold coin or a piece of paper and that's where it's a very weak connection just like the other part where you're trying to anchor some physical truth to mm -hmm. a blockchain right so there's no direct connection and this is why bitcoin is so powerful because you don't need to anchor anything to it it is just bitcoin and we just say bitcoin is money and now mm -hmm. the two things are one in the same yeah that's an excellent point um it's like we needed the advantages of digitization or in, to informationalize something because if money is just an abstraction, then obviously the more abstract it is, the more useful. But the problem with abstraction is you're in the realm of just ideas, right? Which are infinitely replicable. So you can't, there's no scarcity, right? There's a double spend and inflation. If I share an idea with you, it's like, well, I didn't lose the idea. I just shared it with you and now we both have it. That doesn't work for money, right? Obviously, you just yeah. it gets hyperinflated. Um, it reminds me too what you're saying there. Nick Zabo used to say that something like I think he used the term blockchains preserve truth and lies equally. Mm -hmm. So it's not 
you have to have the proof of work element, you know, and, um, and the, I guess the, or the connection you're describing, that's kind of the Oracle problem, right? It's like, you can't know whatever you're putting onto that record. And if it's something about physical reality, you're, you have counterparty risk in the Oracle, like whoever put the data on that, that database or that ledger, you can't know if it was truth or true or false, but Bitcoin sort of obviates the whole thing just by being this self-contained system of, of just what well, it's connected to the real world via mining, but it's not taking anything physical from the real world and putting it on the ledger. It just has a self-contained quantity of, of UTXOs or, or mm -hmm. Bitcoin, I guess, to be more general. Um, it doesn't seem like you can replicate that, right? It's just kind of a one-time thing. Yeah, it is a one-time thing. I mean, people have tried and I think 20,000 people have tried or companies have tried yeah. and we see the, the effect, but nothing can be taking the place of Bitcoin simply because, you know, it is the reinvention of money mm -hmm. and you can only do that once, just like you can only invent the wheel once or discover fire once. Yes. Yeah. If any, maybe it's the same impulse, right? The the impulse to shitcoin is the same impulse that Bitcoin is fixing in the world, right? Central banking is kind of like the ultimate shitcoin monopoly. <laughs> Just produce these things ad infinitum and externalize the cost. Well, you fix that by having something that no one can counterfeit or corrupt. Okay, we're dancing around this a little bit, but I have to ask you, what are your thoughts on the nature of money itself? Like what, obviously the namesake of the show. So I guess I could just ask you, what is um, Again, we go to that same um, challenge of, of describing the old versus new, right? Whether it's scarcity or abundance, whether it's uh, Mad Max or Star Trek, however you want to frame it. And I think of money in that realm. Um, for me, the, the, the inflection point came when we floated off the gold standard mm -hmm. uh, in the early 70s. And um, we tried to grow the global economy with debt, um, which uh, works until you uh, until you get hit by the issue that technology is deflationary. Mm -hmm. And the TV that you paid a thousand bucks for is going to be worth 500 uh, in a year, or, or you double the features. Um, and now a debt-based system doesn't work. Um, because you can't rely on in inflation to pay back that loan as less than when you bought it. Now the whole system collapses. So we're facing, I think, a systemic collapse in fiat currencies as a result. Okay. The only tool left to central banks is printing more money, right. um, which we've seen rampantly. And who the hell needs 200 fiat currencies in the world? right? Um, and so you have something like Bitcoin coming along, which I find exciting uh, not really for the digital aspect of it, but more because it's a programmable mm -hmm. uh, and and b decentralized. Mm -hmm. That I think is the so for me when when uh, I think it was Brock Pierce who first described the Byzantine generals problem to me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when the penny dropped for me. I went, wow, you can have authentication on a decentralized model, never been done before, and now we have it, and that just changes everything. Yeah. And and that that sends you down a rabbit hole and of excitement because everything, and I came at this from a, an identity um, angle because I was participating in Silicon Valley in what are called the uh, series of conferences called the internet identity workshops. Mm -hmm. And they were worrying about identity and how do you 
take your Google ID and use it over here or uh, Facebook ID and everybody's trying to be the dominant ID model. But you always had a, a trusted third party that managed your identity for you. And therefore, that was that was uh, compromisable. Mm-hmm. And so you couldn't have truly secure identity. And we were stuck with this problem that if the third party got hacked, your identity was screwed. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody could figure out how to get around that problem. And we sat with that for like three, four, five years. And then boom, Bitcoin shows up. And you're like, whoa, this solves for that. That's incredible. And and it's, again, as you mentioned before, I think it was really elegant. Once you have it, you can't unlearn it. Right. It's there. And now you just go, wow, now look at the ripple effects of applying this to land titles and intellectual property and all sorts of things. It's super exciting what, what is likely to come from this. But it's it's a sea change that nobody in our lifetime has ever understood or experienced. You really need psychedelics to get your head around it, almost. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and there's this unbelievable immune system response from the legacy going, no, we should protect the existing system. And it, this is, again, it goes back to that Star Trek versus Mad Max challenge or scarcity to abundance challenge. I think of Bitcoin as the money of abundance. Mm. Voting with your wallet versus voting via ballot. And... Um... If you understand that, like if you accept that argument that money is kind of a, a grassroots democratic voting system for what gets produced in the world, I think that's a really good framing for understanding why fiat currency is effectively voter fraud, right? You have one organization, central bank insiders effectively, that can produce new votes for themselves. So you can actually via the legal monopoly, central banking can produce new units of fiat currency and then expend those into the marketplace to acquire things for themselves and externalize the cost of that acquisition onto people via inflation. So it, you end up with you know, bankers, politicians, other political insiders to the central bank having a lot more of these votes than they otherwise would in a free society that ran on a gold or a Bitcoin standard, for instance. And yeah, so you're uh, talking about the current system or under a central bank digital currency? I'm talking about under fiat currency in general, but we could now take that a step further into a central bank digital currency, which I just view as fiat currency on steroids. It's the same thing, just with more surveillance, tighter controls, less intermediaries. Uh, it kind of cuts out the, the commercial banking sector, which uh, gives people a lot of, you know, for all of its flaws it gives individuals a lot more optionality and autonomy relative to a purely centralized uh, digital bank, uh, digital currency system like a CBDC. I have to ask you because I think you're a brilliant guy. Um, oh gosh, thank you. The, the namesake of the show here, the What Is Money show. What is money to you? How do you think about it? If you're just describing it to a five-year-old, you know, how do you how do you unpack the concept of money? uh, in a very general sense. So when I, when I, you know, you first think about what money is, is it allows you to, to get what you need in a way that's common Mm -hmm. and in a way that you can rely upon. So if I have a need for something, you know, back when bartering was, was it really, really wasn't very effective. So Mm -hmm. I I need a, a common thing that I can exchange a method of exchange so I can obtain the things that I need and provide things that others need. So that's basically what this is, right? So Mm -hmm. if I can do that in a way 
that a I could believe in, and you know that's if, if you believe in fiat currency, um, to the extent that you have faith in receiving it for your service or paying it for the service of others, uh, and that it also creates some sort of a store of, of value if you're keeping it, so that it, it has some value. Of course, there's going to be other factors that affect it. And that's really what money is supposed to do. Money mm. is supposed to allow me to get the stuff I need and get um, rewarded for the stuff I provide so that I can then exchange that for more. So it's, it's, this, it's this exchange mechanism. Mm-hmm. To me, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, but it's clearly far more complicated and way above what I can potentially articulate. No, I think you've done, that's a great job. Like you're highlighting the functional qualities of money. And I, it also speaks to maybe like the trade-off central banks are making. They're kind of compromising that store of value function in, in an attempt to manage economic downturns and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's well said. Well, I guess suffice it to say that the only money that was capable of getting there was Bitcoin, right? Like that's if you're going to stand up against an existing institutional framework, you need a form of money that is outside of that institutional framework. Um, you know, and it's, it's a vote, right? And that's, um, quite a telling story. Okay. So let's pivot here a little bit, because obviously we're talking about the, the nature of money and how it affects the outcome of this, this political event. Um, let me just ask you, Benjamin, the namesake of the show, what is money to you? To me, don't think I'm too cheesy. Uh, I really do like Michael Saylor when he talks about money as energy, that it's your Mm -hmm. stored energy. For me, uh, money is your passion. It's a way to store your passion because you Mm. invest your blood, sweat, and tears into projects or businesses or creating art or creating anything. Mm -hmm. And how do we store our creative energy nowadays? We store it in the form of money. Mm. And I think what the the problem that we have now is the right of your creative energy is exclusively with governments that are increasingly authoritarian. Bitcoin allows us to get off that that crazy town, that crazy train, Mm. and it allows us to encapsulate our own personal creativity and our passions and allows us to self-custodial it entirely that no one else can touch it. If your seed phrase is in your head along with your creativity, no one in the world has access to it. It Mm -hmm. is for me, real money. And yes, I I know the technical terms of the technical definitions of hard money and soft money. I get Mm -hmm. that, but Mm -hmm. I'm talking abstractly for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Money in itself is, it's the essence of what we try to accomplish with our life in a way that we we can measure it. Now, that's not always the case. It's not, we don't always do things for money. We get that. But it is, it, it when it, when Bitcoin shifts over into money, uh, sorry, when money shifts over into Bitcoin, that's the true essence of what money should be. Fiat is bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is money. Mm. That's how I look at it. No, that's very original. I've never heard anyone put it like that, but you know, in an ideal world, we are all turning our passions into our paychecks, right? We're doing what we like to do in service of others. 
And money is, yeah, quite simply the the medium that allows us to be able to do that, right? And to the extent that a money is seizable or can be deactivated or turned off, like that would be equivalent to being able to extinguish someone's passion or, or you know, the the energy or favors they'd accumulated from others by serving them. And so yeah. I think it, I think it's a great way to frame and it. Not, and not only, I mean, we also have to remember, not everybody in the world has the luxury of being able to monetize their passions. And I get mm-hmm. that. There's many people yeah. that hear that yeah. and say, well, you got, I work at Walmart. That's not my sure. passion. And I, and I get that. But your dreams are. Yeah. The things that you want to do in your dreams. Right. Uh, the vacation you're saving up for or right. the business exactly. you're saving up to start, right? It's It requires money. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Today, there we sit on, call it $400 trillion of global debt. And if you paid back a a trillion dollars, a dollar per second, it'd take you 32,000 odd years to pay back um, a, a trillion dollars. So the debt is already insolvent, mm-hmm. right? And let's just s- stop there. And if anybody wants, so there's no possible way that the debt can re- be repaid back. That's mathematically. It's mathematically. Yeah. Especially if technology is making things cheaper. Right. It, that would make the debt more expensive in real terms. Right, so it has as things like the iPhone camera eradicates the need for Kodak mm-hmm. film, things get cheaper. As technology drives things cheaper, that would technically make the debt more expensive and harder to pay back. Right, right, right. So it gets it, it explodes in real terms. Yeah. So that entire th- system that we live in and we measure entire, not just social economic, we measure our lives in, we, our families, our everything. Mm-hmm. 
because we try to gain enough money to be able to live for our, fa- uh, for our families and we measure other people by it and everything mm-hmm. else. The entire thing is unrepayable. And, and we don't want to face that fact. Right. Hard truth. It's the, the hard truth. So we allow inside that system others to manipulate money at an ever-increasing rate to be able to pretend we live in a safe system. Right. And so, and, and, and that has to be, that has to get exponentially worse. Yeah. Um, just because we won't face that, that fact and no government can face that fact. And actually no person can face that fact from that system. It cannot be solved from the system. No person, you could change faces on on the system, but the system is unrepairable from the system. Right. And so, and just think, think through some of the implications. Um, implications are you will vote for somebody who tells you that they can give you more money for nothing. Uh-huh. Right. Right. You will not, if somebody so, told you the truth that said your real wages are going to go, your real wages are going to go up, mm-hmm. but your fiat wages are going to come down next year mm-hmm. because you're going to get a real gain, but your, it means your wages are going to come down because prices are going to fall faster right. than your, uh, your, uh, your wages, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fall. Um, you wouldn't vote for that person. You'd think they were crazy. Right. Right. Because we're so used to empowering a system mm-hmm. that says, we're going to, we'll give you more race. We'll give you more money to you. We'll give more money to you. We'll give more. And that money comes with a massive cost. Yeah. That is actually making the entire world more unstable yeah. as, as you, as, as you drive that. And it's consolidating. It's, it's transferring all of the productivity gains that should be flowing to society yeah. into the hands of very few. And so it ends in a very dystopian world. Right. If you lived in a world where, 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 because there, it ends in a dystopian world because you can't have individual rights and freedoms under a system that looks like that. Right. Because the system has to take them to be able to perpetrate that at an ever increasing right. rate. Right. So you don't live, so we believe we live in a democracy. We li- believe we have rule of law, but money is superordinate to it, to mm-hmm. rule of law. Mm-hmm. And so if money is broken, laws get changed to, to the favor of who accesses the money. Yes. And, and so, so that is the system we live in. And, and then what, what you were saying is because of our insecurity in that system and the greater and greater insecurity in that system, we, we give it more power. We yell at that system. We divide from each other. Right. We say it must be that person's fault. Right. We want to ascribe not a system problem. We want to ascribe a person problem right. to that system. And we go in these small little groups right. that are all yelling and making the system stronger. We march on Wall Street. We say 2008, everyone marches on Wall Street. All the exact same people at the top of the uh, uh, social economic ladder are still in power today. Right. And we forget. All right. And it goes on and it gets worse and worse. We, we have proxy wars and we, same people creating them and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And we, we, we constantly lean in. And even for those that understand Bitcoin Mm -hmm. and, and have moved out of that system, they spend too much time out there yelling (laughs) at that system and, and empowering that system only makes it stronger. Right. Because most people don't know that we're in a system change from a, right. uh, from a system that, based, that is, is already insolvent, 
that only re- exists because of our of our our willingness to allow others to manipulate money. Uh-huh. They'll and they get so mad at that with no fix, mm-hmm. they yell at it. I think it was the author Gary North where I originally heard this, but humans like to try and get something for nothing. Now this can be good or bad, right? To be moral or immoral. Good would be the entrepreneurial path, right? I've got a problem, I wanna solve it in a more efficient way, and then once I figure that out, that tool or that service, I can sell that to other people and let them solve it in a more efficient way. So it's kinda like, being cleverly lazy almost like obviously you're working to solve the problem but you're doing it to scratch your own itch so to speak so you're getting something for nothing right you're getting productivity gains you know you can dig a lot more holes per hour with a shovel than you can your hands something like that the other path though is getting something for nothing just by taking so is it is it this universal proclivity for humans to seek something for nothing that got us into this weird mess where we're like we thought we could print money to solve economic crises. Like, oh, there's a problem. Let's just print money. It doesn't require a lot of work. And then over time, that becomes institutionalized. And now, I, I think you see it in culture, right? Like people, like money and wealth is demonized because they have a zero-sum mentality about it. Like for me to get money, I have to take money from someone. But that's not how economics works, right? Yeah. If you collaborate and you coordinate your actions, you actually produce more wealth per person. Yeah. It's positive sum, not zero sum. So I'm just, is that kind of the the cardinal economic sin that got us into this mess? I I don't think so. I think uh, what 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 I think it is is our ability to delude ourselves in the name of helping others. Hmm. I think it's a it's so one so if you said people on top of this system today could easily tell themselves a lie saying if we don't do this, people are going to starve. We have wow. to do it. We, so, so I'm righteous to be able to do this and I'm the one that should be able to, I think it's our collective ability to delude ourselves. So you think even all the way to the top, it's like a, it's like the pinnacle of self-deception then, because these are people. Pinnacle of self, self-deception. Hurting even, the most people. Even, thinking if you know, even if you knew the root cause of the problem and there's no way to solve it from your existing paradigm yeah. and you, all of your wealth and power and influence comes from that paradigm. Then, then you would more easily delude yourself to say, right. "I have to be the one who solves this." Wow. Um, it, it, so, it, and it just reinforces, and it reinforces because because people want to matter to other people. Mm. Um, uh, ultimately, so I think it's just I think it's that. But if you just if if you kind of play this forward throughout time, and why Bitcoin is change mm-hmm. uh, changes this, you probably talked about this many times, probably with me too, but. Uh, if you actually had something that, because money is superordinate to laws, mm-hmm. right? And and but but we put in laws in place, Magna Carta, mm-hmm. Constitution, Bill of Rights, different things, laws in place to essentially protect us, our individuals from the state, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And by doing that, the states that did that had more productivity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that because now people could act, right? property rights yeah. they could act and they could create more wealth that would flow to society yeah. and, and so and and typically authoritarian governments that collected it all and didn't allow that right suffered yes right so when you had rule of law um and 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 rights to individuals yeah. you had faster growth economies yes. and, had for, and but 
over time, because money is superordinate to that process, people with money change the laws. Right. And you lose over time the same thing that protected mm-hmm. the, those people. Cause the only way that you can fight the law is have enough money to right, lobby right, right. everything else. So those laws get whittled away over time. Right. And the laws don't protect the people at the bottom. Right. The laws protect the people at the top. Of course. Right. Yeah. And so, so what that says, and if it didn't look like that, then, then, then the areas with most broken money would have the strongest laws mm-hmm. protecting people. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, but you can see the opposites uh, 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 in the world. You can see that. So now you say in the U S or where are we on that axis of broken money? And we know it has to be more and more broken over mm-hmm. time. And that means we know laws have to be eroded and, and we have to remove individual rights and freedoms over mm-hmm. time. It has to get worse out of that system. What, what would that look like? Now, if you go back in time, um, all through all of these cycles that have changed, uh, changed, we had to do that. And then what, what it turned out is if you could control money, mm-hmm. what that, if you could control the gold, if you could try to mm-hmm. control money, if you could centralize money through gold or anything else, if you could control money, then you had a win at society's loss. Mm-hmm. Right? right. And it was such a power that you went to war to control money, right? Right. You went to you change money, and, and the new and and then when you reset it, you re, we promise we won't abuse money again, right? Right. And, right. And it right. just repeats over time. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, and and then you add to that, winners write the history books. Mm-hmm. So if what we're saying is true, then all of the books you and I read, and all of the history throughout time on all of these different standards around money. Mm-hmm must be fundamentally carry errors right right because they were they were designed with that error code in them and winners write the history books right right wow so we must be looking through that error of what happened here what happened here what we didn't see because winners write the history books (laughs) yeah what we didn't see in that whole whole thing and bitcoin removing through decentralization and and trust so we don't need the institution yeah and putting it in our hands the first time in history that that actually can um can change the future it's brilliant it's that's a it's a unalterable history that can't be rewritten can. by the political winners through right? proof, proof of work and right. the longest chain yeah um you have you have a forward from 2009 that unalterable yeah <laughs> that's uh that it gets stronger and stronger and more decentralized and more secure over time right and it the rails of future civilization will rely on on something that's based on truth so leon i would love to throw that over to you and just ask you your opinion on what is money mm-hmm. i think for me money is it's a language it's, it's a language of value mm-hmm. it's the way that we value value things we value the outside world mm-hmm. um if i for example talk about look value for value you know the value for value model in bitcoin if i consume content that i uh, that i enjoy i um i show my appreciation by sending you some sets via the lightning network or sending you some bitcoin for mm-hmm. example and um because our monetary system is broken nothing has value you know, you can see it in countries that go through hyperinflation. Um, a, a historical example is the Weimar Republic mm. in the 1920s. From 1918 to uh, 1923, 
Germany experienced um, a horrible time of hyperinflation. And then uh, shortly after, the Nazis, you know, came into, came into power. Because mm -hmm. when money loses value, everything else loses value. Right. And people become pessimistic about the future. So, so money is a language with which we can um, communicate amongst each other and with which, with which we can value, value each other. Mm. So it's really, you know, whether you like money or not, it's really the base of human civilization. Mm -hmm. I would even go as far as saying that before Bitcoin, we were living in, in you know, under financial oppression in the, mm. in the dark ages. Mm -hmm. um, if we look back at, for example, Rome right now, we think, you know, it's unbelievable that they had slaves. Mm -hmm. But back then, nobody questions that people had slaves. Right. And if you look, you know, at, at today, Nobody really questions that there's a system that steals your your time, because right. what what money also is it's it's a battery for the time that you have on this earth mm -hmm. because money is something that received by working, yeah. but if money loses value and I spend my time working, I waste time sure. and time next to Bitcoin is the only limited resource, real limited resource mm -hmm. here on earth. I mean, even most precious metals are not. Uh, fixed in supply there's there's, right. there's you can find gold in space you there's constantly new discoveries of gold yeah. so the only thing that's really fixed in supply next to bitcoin is time yeah and a monetary system that steals our time is it's evil i think it was what you said earlier was really interesting about like you know people using gaming you you referenced earlier about using games as a way to like test and like figure out morality you, mm -hmm. you mentioned that and it's like i do feel like the games are like a test bed for us to like, you know, figure out who we are. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you, you get these games where it's like Splinter Cell. Like I was, I mean, I shouldn't admit this, but I was always doing the bad thing. Like yeah, I yeah, always, yeah. but I was like, I'm just going to do it because I'm not like this in real life. <laughs> and I can also feel the consequences. So I feel like it's like you can learn a lot about yourself. You can learn a lot about like everything. Like, yes. you say, like bartering, yes. um, you know, like out these like external markets around um, Diablo too. So I yeah. think like, Games are a perfect way for us to like teach people about an even new newer technology, which is Bitcoin. Because right. it's like, hey, I'm having fun, but in the back, we're like learning. Whereas like, you know, when we were young, like, no, set an econ book in front of us, and I'd be like, no, hundred percent, yeah. But like a game, right? Yeah, you don't even intend to learn about economics, right? Like I, as I was telling you, I started playing. So for the people that may not know what this is, it's kind of like. A Dungeons and Dragons video game, I guess, is kind of the best way. Yeah. If you're a dungeon crawler, <laughs> and so you run around fighting demons and all that. But there, you could exit the game and go into these trade channels where people were trading equipment. You know, the swords and the helmets and all that. And started out playing the dungeon crawler game, but over time, started playing the trade channels more often, and that became like my thing. I was like buy low, sell high. You know, yeah. arbitrage and get wealthy in the game. And it was so cool like to go through that experience. And then people started selling those items eventually on eBay for real money. Yeah. And that was like very impactful on me. I'm like, oh my goodness, this game I've been playing is like real, like it's real economics. And the other thing that was super cool was there was no money in the game, but there was this little tiny ring. You only had like 40 spaces you could put items on. And this ring only took up one of the spaces. So it was very divisible, I guess you would say. And people started pricing things in terms of that ring. It was called the Stone of Jordan ring. So they'd price everything in SOJs. So there's like a, an emergent currency in this little free market. And so I guess that kind of left a mark too. It's like, oh, you know, money is not 
a thing someone imposes it just emerges yeah i mean i think there's like things that are like inherently human and it's one like social interactions it's play Mm. it's also the transfer of value and Mm. i think those things just like they're always going to be intertwined and any time that someone like takes one out or you know tries to control one like people will evolve their own set with like games there's no value transfer but people create it on their own yes really powerful yeah yeah and as you said offline too they tried in diablo 3 to like that was like a naturally that was a free market basically it just happened yeah but they tried to the game designers tried to control that in diablo 3 and it didn't work it like it was a disaster one of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape to take care of my brain power i do many things such as striving to read write exercise and meditate daily one of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is mindlab pro MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. There was basically, I think these are two blackouts in New York City where the power went out for at least 24 hours. One was in the early 60s. The second one was in 1977, I believe. Yep, 65 and and 77. 65 and 77. And Seoul just 
um, makes a point that in the, the blackout in 1965, um, nothing really happened. There wasn't really any crime. Like crime went down. Crime, crime went, went down, down so actually, over, yeah. yeah, for the night. Like people were being helpful, and he, I think he used the term conviviality. Like it was just people were helping each other get through the blackout, and crime actually declined. And then an almost identical circumstance um, took hold in 1977. I think another blackout, and it was the exact opposite outcome. Like there was just massive. Um, they said like within. Uh, hours of the blackout that fires could be seen, you know, people were looting, destroying property, uh, everything that could be smashed was smashed. And, you know, I admittedly looking at the world through the money lens, my question is, you know, well, pre 1971 and post 1971, how much of the debasement of currency or the shift onto a fully fiat paradigm actually contributed to, the different social responses we saw to the blackouts. And this gets into something like I've talked about with the author of the psychology of totalitarianism, Matthias Desmond, who's written the book on um, mass psychosis. And basically, you know, he's, he's explored a lot of the contributory factors, but one of them is when you violate people's private property, you're actually loosening their grip on reality, right? It's hard, harder to deal with reality when you, you can't trust an institution like property. You know, you don't know if you own the thing that you think you own. You don't know if the money in the bank is actually yours. You're going to be able to get it out. So seeing those two different sociological responses, you know, within the span of a couple of decades being totally opposite to one another and right smack dab in the middle is 1971, where we shifted fully onto a fiat paradigm, which is, the accelerated debasement of private property effectively. The question in my mind becomes like, how much does the debasement of the monetary standard or the institution of private property contribute to the debasement of social cohesion and morality? Hmm. You know, one of the things this reminds me of is that when, for all of its pretended rigor, when the Keynesians don't know what's happening, they resort to ridiculous theories and they say, oh, it's the animal spirits that drive the behavior of the consumers. And what that reminds me of is very much the this posture that the New York Times took to those to those riots. And what they said was, you know, they knew that the statistics were quite disparate between 65 and 77 for the right. riots. And then they said their explanation was for the 77 riots where crime went up dramatically and there was looting and arson. Mm -hmm. The Good Samaritans of 1965 were not conspicuous last Wednesday night. Right? That's right. So they offer these kind of ridiculous fiat theories for why things happened. And I guess what I'm tying together there is the bad thinking of animal spirits with the mm. bad thinking of, oh, this thing just happened or there's some random reason why it happened. And when, in fact, what we should be saying is, wow, this prevailing social vision doesn't work. Mm. And one of the things Sol goes like he says, you know, in the, in the early half of the 20th century, the British had a, rep a reputation for tremendous order and gentility mm -hmm. at amazing scale. And they give all kinds of examples. Like, And there were foreigners, I think someone from Singapore or Thailand was, was visiting the UK, and they noted that, like, wow, there is an honor system for the, the newspaper stand. And you can right. just walk by, and they know these things don't exist anymore. And I want to talk more about that yeah. in just a second. So there was a sea change around the middle of the century, which, you know, not... Coincidentally, uh, I think Bretton Woods around 71, like, you know, the convertibility of the dollar gold, like was completely destroyed 
yeah. by the time 71 came around. So to your point, is this causation? I don't know. There mm-hmm. is a correlation between a sea change, a shift in monetary policy, yeah. which, you know, right around the, the middle of the 20th century and a, a sea change in, in behavior. So uh, at least there's a correlation and maybe it's part of this theme you opened the episode with is that language, law and money are the networks mm-hmm. that complex systems use to communicate. And if you corrupt the communication links, then yes. you corrupt the, you disrupt the communication. So you so said you this coordination. You said this offline beforehand, like a network is only as good as its links, right? So well, what are the links in these complex networks we're describing? Well, language is one. The pricing mechanism is another private property is another, right? The link between owners and assets. Um, and we're, we're constantly looking I, maybe this is somewhat human nature, even the, the terminology we use, is this an upstream effect or is this downstream, right? Is culture upstream yeah. from economics or downstream from economics? Like again, metaphorically, we're humans that have grown up near flowing bodies of water. So we say upstream or downstream, but when you get into really, you get into biology, right? Up close, what you don't see really uh, direct arrows of causality. What you see is a lot of feedback loops, right? Like where every action is kind of creating opposite reactions that create, um, complex, unpredictable behavior. This is the source of unintended consequences and things like this. So, um, I think when we're, when we're actually looking at the world upstream and downstream might be a pretty blunt instrument, right? Something we can use, but the reality is, everything influences everything else at, at a high enough resolution. And so the, the key point uh, and what you said there, like a network is only as good as its links is we should try and preserve the integrity of the links such that the truth is propagating through these systems, right? That we're adapting to reality as it actually is rather than as we wish it would be. Um, and I tried to capture all this in a tweet at one point and I'll, I'll read that. I wrote that the worst thing you can do to any self-organizing system is to interrupt its internal communications network for the world economy. Pricing is the internal communications network. Central banking destroys the self-organization of the world economy by interrupting pricing. Now you could swap out, you know, pricing is what's coordinating the world economy. Well, language and rational discourse is what's coordinating a lot of human action at the micro level. And even to some extent at the macro level, when you start interrupting those linkages, whether it's language pricing, again, property, I think you're, you're pushing entropy into the system, right? The system, I I forget how you describe coordination earlier. You said something action is something at a distance, but you're interrupting the ability of the system to adapt to the conditions of reality. And when you do that, like that's almost the definition of, of, of negative outcomes and chaos, right? If you're not adapting to what actually is, well, you're not changing reality, right? So reality is probably smacking you in the face, right? If you're not diving under the wave in the ocean, you just stand there because you don't think the wave's really going to hit you. Well, then the wave hits you and it knocks you on your ass. So hope that makes some sense. So many beautiful ideas came out there. Um, so the first is there is no before and after there is no upstream or downstream in a complex system. And I want to give people yeah. a mental model for this. And a mental model is if we think of a complex system where many variables and many systems are at play and no one's tail is wagging the dog, no one system is driving the other. So if we have uh, mil- billions of, of strings 
and of as many different colors, and they are embedded in millions of different ways in a very complex tangle. You can't say that one is driving the other or that one even comes before the other. That's the first point. And the second point is that this thing that we all value, whether socialist or capitalist, it doesn't matter, or anarchist, this thing that we all value is not governmental order. We mm. value actual order and organization, an extended order across the globe, which is prosperity and communication across the globe. And here's mm. a succinct way of saying what you were saying, and the network is only as good as its links, is that this organization is nothing but coordination at a distance. Mm. And the reason mm -hmm. we talked about this in the Austrian economics episode, and we brought up this, uh, go, go and find it, the, the iPencil economics article, very short. And it basically shows that there's no one person on earth who knows how to manufacture a pencil, the bite and the rubber, uh, the ferrule, that little metal mm -hmm. piece that's used to adapt the rubber to the wood, the lacquer. These all come from all around the world, different skills, different people, the graphite. It needs to be compressed in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And the pencils need to be manufactured in a certain way. And the single dimension of the price coordinates all these factors at a distance. Mm -hmm. And then this, this one thing, which is now commodity levels of cheap, and the world is better for it because we have more writing because pencils are cheap. And, you know, we won't even need pencils very soon. And, mm -hmm. and digital pixels are probably even cheaper to manufacture than, than pencils or than graphite. But the key point is that this extended order and this communication at a distance, which is the global civilization that we all want to have. I'm not saying that in the sense of one world order, nothing mm -hmm. like that. But in order for us to have coordination between India and Iran and America and Iceland and all of these disparate, we, the links, the communication, the law, the language, and the money need to be good. Yes. And in the prevailing social vision, we have attacked all three of those. And what happens when you destroy the coordination mechanism? Like, you know, this is a horrible thing to think about, but imagine you cut a major nervous, a major part of the nervous system. Well, mm. now that entity, which was, you know, formerly connected to the whole is just kind of disjointed and if it can even act at all, has to act on its own with very little mm. intelligence. And I think that's the point is that by corrupting the communication links, by corrupting law, language, and money, we have people are now breaking into factions. You can literally see it happening mm -hmm. in front of yourself. And one of the purposes behind individual trade, one of the purposes behind Bitcoin is that nobody can mm -hmm. stop me from engaging in a free trade with anybody at any time for any purpose. Mm -hmm. And isn't it ironic that the thing that 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 status and central planners fear the most, the free market is actually the mechanism of coordination around the globe that causes me not to care about gender, not to care about race, not to care about religion. I'm looking for the good. This sounds inhumane, but it's exactly the opposite at the cheapest price. And we've seen examples in Sowell's own work where the capitalists were actually driving the destruction of discrimination. Remember, it was the states that said the railroad cars couldn't be integrated. The railroad mm. companies were like, ah, please, I just want to put butts in seats. I don't care yeah. what the people look like. Like, right. you know, it's much cheaper for me to have a single car with everybody integrated. So, man, so many, so many thoughts there, but maybe, maybe you can, you can tie that all together. Yeah. Well, I, what occurred to me there again, just our language tells us so much about ourselves, right? I think that the idea of the, the feedback loop being primary uh, and maybe the highest resolution depiction of our relationship to the world is like when the old saying, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? It's, we don't, we don't really know, right? It's just, it's, there's, there's a complexity there. Um, you can't say that sequentially throughout evolutionary history, there was a chicken and then the chicken started laying eggs. Like we don't really, right. it's hard to disentangle that. Right. Um, and I, I the, the one point I would make, like we said, law, money, uh, speech, you know, or language, I guess, being this 
this medium for creating organization as coordination at over a distance or at a distance. Um, I would just point out there that, you know, law, the rule of law and money, these both ground out in the same institution, which is that most important link in the world, which is private property, right? The link between you and your stuff, you and your assets. So this is why I'm always beating that drum. It's like, you have to have, again, if we're trying to preserve the integrity of the complex system, that is the world economy and have this extended spontaneous order that Hayek has, has written about, you need to maintain the integrity of the link, right? Like the network is only as strong as its links. The chain is only as, as strong as its weakest link, you might say. And, and that seems to be the most important link in the world. It's like, if you actually want to solve problems, right. And, and bootstrap yourself out of a poor economic situation into a hot, into a better economic situation. Well, you need integrity mm-hmm. between the value of the things you create and the actual your ownership over those assets, your power to control and exclude others from their use. Like that's the primary link here that makes the global economy, a functional network. This reminds me of something that Saylor said, Michael Saylor said, he said that the miracle of Bitcoin is not that you can transfer value over space. So, you know, it's really hard (laughs) to move a ton of gold, let's say from the Philippines to the United States. I mean, you're going to pay a lot of money and it will be paid to intermediary agencies. The miracle of Bitcoin is not that you can transfer wealth almost instantly. There are block clearance times over space. It's that you can transfer wealth over time. That's right. And the observation I want to make here, if the network is only as good as its links, you know, this is a thought we've started before is that what new economic and humane structures of coordination can we project with better materials and better links? Right. Mm -hmm. And like Sailor has this whole hierarchy of, you know, it was only we could not have project naval power until we had better materials. So Mm -hmm. the iron, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, the difference between a wood ship and an iron ship is massive in terms of scale, in terms of efficiency, Mm -hmm. in terms of its ability to uh, to move goods across space and time. And then uh, the aviation industry required we had aluminum and titanium, like other more sophisticated materials. And so uh, the same way that bad terms, bad thinking, the same way that disrupting the the links of law, language, and money can cause uh, isolation and cause chaos. And you know, mm-hmm. you know what we saw in the in the riots in New York between sixty five mm-hmm. and seventy seven. By improving the quality of the materials, we improve the quality of the coordination. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is you know, that is a very constructive way to answer this hard question we've been asking is, you know, how do we come out of the hangover? Um, and actually it's funny because it is, Bitcoin is a counterexample to many things. For instance, that there's no such thing as perfect scarcity. Mm-hmm. It is a counterexample to many things, but uh, it's still, people are still stuck in the fiat hangover and it may take, you know, the professor hankies of the world many, many years. You know, they may have to be smacked in the, in the face multiple times yeah. with the successes of Bitcoin. Yeah. So like the idea of, uh, uh, say a chalice, for example, like when we, when I say like, think of a chalice, there's a very specific idea that you have a chalice of, it's like a goblet, it's gold, it's designed to hold wine. You use it in ceremonies, like all of those things particularly come into the development of how and why we say that that thing itself is a chalice. And so to me, when we say Bitcoin is money. What's really happening is it's gathering together these very important concepts in a unique way that makes it the most 
money that a thing could be. And I think like, and I haven't figured it all out yet, but it seems to me it's something about like gathering, it, it's like unifying energy and subjective choice together along with like, like the, the ability to retain a secret and the choice of unveiling that as this like presentation of sovereignty. I don't know. I, I haven't figured it all that's, out yet. That's like, the unsorted territory or the unexplored yeah, territory. This, this, this is, I get, get high by myself. And go, <laughs> Whoa. Wait, let's, write, let's write this down. Okay. Um, look, on that thread though. So asking the question, what is money to a lot of people and talking about it and thinking about it a lot. It's like you have a show about it. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> what? Um, I, I don't know if I've drank too much of my own Kool-Aid or what, but it's it sort of starts to look like a structural metaphor for reality. Mm -hmm. And what, and again, I'm going to struggle to say this, but um, the nature of words, you know, we're, we're slicing and dicing this fluid reality up into little data packets that we can then transfer back and forth. They're static, right? Words, I mean, they, the definitions change over time, but at any one moment, the expectation is the meaning I'm assigning to a word is the meaning, roughly the meaning you're assigning to the word. So we're using little static mapping tools to deal with something that's like infinitely fluid and complex. Um, in that world where everything's infinitely fluid and complex, everything affects everything else. This gets, for me, this is like when Plato talks about all procession as also a reversion, mm -hmm. or when Newton says every action has an equal and opposite reaction or Viveki talks about reciprocal reconstruction. Like every time you interact with something, uh, or, or mimesis, right? There's the book, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. When humans interact, we're basically just imitating one another. Sure. So who you're interacting with right now is this amalgam of everyone I've ever interacted with across time, as they are. For the, so it's like we're this networked thing. So we're like trying to describe that whole big, fluid, reciprocally reconstructing reality with these little static words, and that's the struggle in a way. Like we can never... The, yeah. wor the words are never sufficient, right? To capture the, the, the truth as in the ultimate nature of reality. But money is like kind of a metaphor. Like it's because everything's always exchanging with itself, right? Not yeah, with itself, it's... with other things, but in exchange, both things are changed. Whatever you're choosing to frame as things. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting because, uh, so like in terms of language and, you know, so we have these like this rather limited and poor language concept of English that we can use to talk and exchange about this stuff. But then, uh, you know, for example, like put your money where your mouth is. Now we have money that can sort of speak in this different way. And what's very interesting is that like, if money had the high fidelityness that, you know, even gold has, the world would be very, very different from a fiat based world. Because like now, now the base language of money, for example, it's not getting screwed with all the time and manipulated and changed. Yeah. And so one of the great problems is even though we have money and, and money can act as this uh, very powerful object that understands, you know, the cause and effect change, if you will, because of fiatism that distorts the entirety of what's going on. And by cutting out fiat and replacing it with Bitcoin, now that language has a much, much greater fidelity to it that allows for it to operate in a much more meaningful way again, returning to meaning, you know, and, and that it is more meaningful because in that exchange, it has the total high fidelity of, you know, I, I, I know the staticness of the Bitcoin system. I know that exchanging with Rob, it belongs only to him, you know, and right now when we interact with fiat money, 
there's all of this tertiary stuff going on that we're not actually thinking about and that, you know, we very much have this authoritarian mindset that kind of magically pushes that away of that if I give you $100, it's worth $100 that's going to be static in time, yeah. which we know just isn't true. Right. That's a great, that's why when I said this on a tweet recently, when you understand that across time, $1 does not equal $1 but one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, then you will understand mm -hmm. right, that we have this static object through time that we can't change or corrupt or, it's like the ultimate denominator, right? If you're gonna have a frame, the nature of rationality is the ratio, right? You have the numerator and the denominator or the thing you're evaluating and the frame through which you're evaluating it. We need this fixed denominator to have like economic rationality. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think I think all of these things, as we contemplate it and pour over it, um, you know, and with the, the title of what your show is, What is Money? To me, one of the things I've gotten from Heidegger is pouring over the same question over and over. Like, that's truly what thinking is. It's not coming to the answer. It's considering all the different angles, all the inquiry that we can, having to try to exhaust it and exhume it over and over to really see, is, is what we think actually the truth? Is it actually what we think it is? And that's the real process of thinking. It's not the right answer. It's doing the work. Doing the work. To find the right Proof answer. Proof of work all the way down.